0: On Dark Republic's bloody ground The 30th of May Oh, brothers, lift your voices high For them that died that day The men who make our country steal The toilers in the mill They said in union is our strength
1: And justice is our will What happened was uh, almost inexplicably, uh, after maybe a few stones were thrown or some in the crowd wanted to keep pushing, the police simply opened fire at point-blank range. That's
2: Greg Mitchell, director of the new documentary, Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried. The film explores a largely forgotten episode in labor and media history the tragic events in chicago on memorial day in 1937 when heavily armed police opened fire on striking steel workers and their supporters killing 10. the massacre was captured on film but was suppressed by the studio elise bryant co-host of the labor goes to the movies podcast joined me to talk with director greg mitchell and producer lynn goldfarb earlier this week and on Labor History in Two.
3: The year was 1937. That was the day that workers at the Jones and Laughlin plant in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, voted in the first ever union election in the United States steel industry under the National Labor Relations Board.
2: I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today.
0: So Greg, what's the first movie that you remember that like when you were
1: a kid that it just went, wow, whoa. whoa. That's a movie. Wow. Uh, Well, that's a good question. I could say one of the most influential movies, although I was about uh, 13 at the time, was Dr. Strangelove, which I went to see. Uh And I, I, uh, of course, I grew up in the the 50s, late 50s with uh, nuclear terror and everything. Uh, But I saw that movie. And of course, I thought it was both, of course, funny and scary and meaningful. And I mentioned it as significant only because... I went on to, uh, much of my career since has been devoted to nuclear subjects and Hiroshima and atomic bomb and, uh, uh, and make, writing books and making films about it. So I, I'd have to say Dr. Strangelove somehow got into my DNA. So. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, Lynn. How you doing? Hi, fine. When you were a kid, what was the movie that
4: made
0: you go, ooh, ah, it had a profound impact on
4: you. Growing up female which was the first film, you know, that Julia Riker had made. And it came out when I was in college and when we were making with Babies and Banners, she had made Union Maids, right? before But if you kind of say the first film-
0: I don't know the first.
4: Yeah, the first one was Growing Up Female and showed me some of the power of film and then um, definitely was influenced by Union Maids. And I was also very influenced by salt of the earth. We want to talk a little bit
2: about uh, the Memorial Day Massacre itself. And then we want to talk about the mysterious film that was uh, made and unmade several times. Okay.
1: Well, in, in a nutshell, it happened in 1937. So we're still in the midst of the depression. Um, and it was the virtually the high point of labor agitation in the U.S., um, there had been strikes all over the place, including the historic sit-in strikes at the GM and Ford and so forth. So we got to the spring of 1937, and um, partly thanks to John L. Lewis, uh, what was called Big Steel, mainly U.S. Steel, made a deal with the new union, the new Steelworkers Union, giving them things like an eight-hour day and time and a half for overtime and so forth. Um, great progress and all due to the, uh, the agitation of the, the union and the workers. However, what was known as little steel, which was the smaller, but by no means small steel companies, um, including Bethlehem and other famous names, um, those owners didn't banded together and did not recognize the union or allow any concessions or any contract, so in late May of 1937, workers at these smaller uh, tens of thousands, I think the number is 80,000 workers at these uh, smaller steel plants in the Midwest and Pennsylvania went on strike. And in the uh, one of the largest plants, the Republic Steel Plant in South Chicago, picket lines were met by police with nightsticks and many workers were injured. And so the organizers called for a picnic on Memorial Day and invited uh, workers and their supporters and the community and uh, uh, many people brought children, of course, obviously wives and so forth. So it was, um, you know, men, women, and children having a picnic out on this great prairie near the Republic steel plant. And it was so successful. The uh, organizers announced, well, we're going to have a march towards the plant. And when we get near the plant, we'll set up a legal mass picket. and so, uh, many in the crowd embarked on that, but they only got halfway to the plant when they were met by hundreds of Chicago's uh, not so finest, stopped them from going, ordered them to disperse. Now they, it could have just ended there. um, you know, the crowd would have gotten tired and you know, retreated or the the cops might have you know lowered tensions and so forth. But what happened was uh, almost inexplicably, Uh, After maybe a a few stones were thrown or uh, uh, some in the crowd wanted to keep pushing, the police simply opened fire uh, at point-blank range. And uh, of course, everyone in the crowd, including the women and children, ran away. (laughs) And within a couple minutes, 40 had been shot, the vast majority in the back or in the side, and 10 uh, ended up uh, dying of the wounds. And then the police waded through the crowd and beat beat people over the head senseless including you know women and so there were another 50 who were injured enough to go to the hospital and all the injured were arrested so that's the one of the other kickers in the end not a single policeman would suffer or be punished uh where you had 90 injured uh workers including several women and uh, and they were arrested or died. And of course this created a great uproar around the country and among workers but uh, and we can get to the the media coverage and the the film you mentioned later but basically the next day and in coming days the media including the New York Times and the Washington Post um coverage was that the, there was a riot and the mob was trying to advance to the plant and you know invade the plant and, and police had no choice but to you know open fire although it sounds kind of bad since Almost none of the police were injured and you had this great toll among the uh, workers. I've known
2: about the the Memorial Day massacre and I I had known that it was filmed, um, but I didn't really know the story about what happened to the
1: film. Well, what happened was there, there was a, a, a newsreel cameraman from Paramount News, which was one of the leading newsreel companies. And of course, as you know, newsreels were were incredibly popular then. Uh, People went to the movies all all the time, and the newsreels were part of every screening. So newsreels were a big, big deal then, pre-television. And so this cameraman was at at the scene, and he basically filmed almost all of the confrontation and the aftermath, Uh, police not only shooting uh, the bullets, but then beating people over the head, and then dragging them to uh, police vans without any medical treatment, and arresting them and sending them on their way to a hospital might be an hour away so he captured all this in about four minutes and um, again just a a very nutshell here uh, account uh, paramount then created an account and then refused to release it and when they were asked about it they were said we you know we're afraid it's going to set off riots in the theaters um, now, chances are they were trying to protect the police, and they were trying to protect Republic Steel, and trying to protect uh, the you know the establishment from the what was then this great labor f- uh, ferment and you know radicalism and so forth. Um, a um, congressional uh, Senate committee under Senator Robert LaFollette, who was the great progressive from Wisconsin, subpoenaed the footage. Uh, a famous investigative reporter. Uh, was allowed to watch it. He wrote. He then wrote a, an account that uh, finally the media recognized that something happened here. It was not a mob that it was trying to invade uh, the uh, plant. And uh, uh, La Follette called for hearings uh, at which the footage shot by Paramount was finally screened. And uh, this, of course, set off for great final reaction of people watching this very graphic footage, uh, obviously murders of 10 people and, uh, and a cover-up. So again, that's just a nutshell. There's much more in the film and in, and in my book uh, about that. Um, But that's, that's, uh, there was a cover-up and, um, and so people were not allowed. And even after the film was screened and Paramount finally released it, the, that newsreel was banned in Chicago and St. Louis and Massachusetts and a bunch of other cities. So even after all that, it still was, uh, you know, was banned in uh, parts of the country.
0: Yes,
4: uh, so very enlightening, very enlightening. So, yeah, Lynn, I was, I was about to come to you and, and just okay. in with um, you. I can answer how I got involved with this, because I think um, uh, so I've always been very interested in labor in the 30s, labor struggles. And I think they've really been the defining moment, you know, in labor history of where the labor movement could have gone either way. And with the CIO, it was very successful it, with a lot of ups and downs along the way. In 1992, well, soon after I made With Babies and Banners, I took a job with um Henry Hampton and Blackside on the Great Depression series. And I worked on two films there, the film on Upton Sinclair, of which the film that Greg and I did last year, you know, used some of the interviews or used many of the interviews that I had done in 1992. And then the other film I was supposed to do for the series was on labor. And I started out by doing the research for the Memorial Day massacre and the Great Steel Strike. And I did interviews, pre-interviews with people like Tom Girdler Jr. and and did an interview with Harold Rossman who's in a Memorial Day massacre. And then Blackside never was able to raise the money to do a whole film on labor. And so, which is kind of crazy. It's, you know, it was the Great Depression in the 30s and labor was <laughs> such an important part of uh, what the Great Depression in the 30s was.
0: I also found it fascinating that you all were able to spotlight two women mm-hmm. in in the documentary and really highlight them. And I just thought, is that 2023 brain or something. <laughs> no, <Lee>, at <laughs> you know, really know that we were
4: do we were doing this from the beginning. I mean, the spot, you know, what women did and their role in the labor movement was always so important. And and not only, but we all knew it was buried, you know, and it really had to be researched. And even, you know, in '92, when we, you know, were working on the original work. You know, we uh, you know work to identify. Well, certainly working at Blackside, it was all about the that you. It was all about diversity and inclusion, and you can't tell a story unless everyone's at the table. You know, and uh, so you know that's always been important guiding principles. There, you know, and luckily they're not new because otherwise we wouldn't have some of the material that we have today. How'd you get their names?
0: And that's what I
1: thought. I was like, here's- Well, a... they, they, uh, they, some of them were identified at the time. And, and you know, fortunately the the hearings, um, I managed to get a copy of the entire La Follette hearings where there were wow. uh, do- dozens of, I mean, he there many of them were policemen <laughs> defending what they did uh, and police officials, but they had many of the activists, uh, people who had been wounded, uh, who testified, uh, and sometimes at great length. And so those names were, were available. And when you know, especially when I, I did my my companion book, um, a lot of them, uh, the the bulk of the book really is, is a testimony from the uh, testimony from the hearings. But um, so you get a wide range of people talking about it, but you know, the, you know, the real hair, I mean, we didn't necessarily, we didn't have to really boost her as the kind of heroine of the story. But A Mexican American woman named Lupe Gallardo Marshall uh, not only had one of the most interesting stories uh, of the day. uh, She is captured in the footage quite remarkably uh, in different stages of being beaten and you know put in a patrol wagon and blood running down her face. But when she testified, she gave the most the the account that moved the most people. You know, a mother of three who was like 32 years old. labor activists worked at the Hull house um, just a great and, and then her story of what happened to her after she was taken to a hospital and trying to help people in the hospital and uh, she just is a you know one of my true heroes now and but we didn't have to boost her you know she was it was not a diversity thing she really really deserved all that uh, if i'm remembering right she wore
2: the same dress to the testimony that she had worn during the massacre and, and then also, wasn't she the one who was uh, beaten, taken to the hospital, and then arrested at, after the hospital?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's, there's a great deal about that in the book more than in the film. But yeah, she was taken to the hospital. She had the, you know, the hospitals were overrun uh, with so many victims. And she basically had, you know, tried to help everyone else. Um with a shortage of nurses and doctors and she was she was bleeding heavily from a a head wound. So uh it's really quite a you know quite a remarkable story and uh certainly recognized at the time, at least in the people who followed followed the story then. Lynn
4: Oh I was just gonna mention that when we in when some of these films, like the research that was done, the interviews that were done for this, that in the early 90s, um, a lot of these people were still alive. You know, they were young. You know, it's it was very interesting. You know, because you you understand that a lot of the activists in many of the movements that took place in the 30s were quite young. So when people were making films or interviewing, you know, even in the the 90s, you know, that that some of these people like Molly West, who was interviewed, um, you know, originally, um, you know, in the Great Depression series and whose interview we used in, in Memorial Day Massacre, you know, I mean, you could find people and people knew people and women knew women, you know, and so that kind of, Research, which of course is impossible now unless you go, you know, to the children or or grandchildren, but you could find people, which was great.
2: <laughs> you, you know what this film reminded me of? You know, we're we're in May, and and May Day, of course, comes out of the Haymarket massacre. And there's still questions and controversy who threw the bomb. What's fascinating about the Memorial Day massacre is that you actually have this footage and I guess I have t- a couple of questions. One is if looking at this footage, why were there so many police a- at this picnic?
1: <laughs> well, it had been preceded by uh, a couple nights of confrontations with strikers when they sort of beat them over the head. So uh, then, they-,
2: they meaning the cops beat the strikers oh, over yeah, the head. Yeah. Okay. yeah
1: and the other thing was that and this is kind of a longer story we can't really get into much but uh, basically republic steel or the the police were in bed with republic steel and in fact they were how the the, the leaders the leading the, the, the police officials were even housed at republic steel there for their headquarters uh, for that week uh and republic steel was the largest purchaser of tear gas in the entire country They gave police the tear gas and they gave police uh, uh, axe handles to use in addition to their billy clubs. So um, so the cops were there very much at the behest of uh, of Republic Steel. But they you know, they they uh, yes, this was a picnic, but they the police wanted to be ready for anything. And in fact, you know, a march began and the police then um, responded. But
2: the brutality and you really, you really, I've seen stills from this. And in the stills, you see lots of people or you see a body on the ground. To see the actual film, what sort of struck me was you see the firing, you see them with with those axe handles, which are just terrifying because the Billy Club is terrifying. These axe handles are huge and the brutality. But then there's also cops are sort of casually walking around it was it's just very
1: odd well there was no real threat Then you know lynn should jump in here but uh, you know there was no the cops were walking around because there never was real threat to them once they started firing you know the the activists were on the ground uh or they'd retreated fully so this was not like the chicago 68 convention uh you know where you had uh you know protesters and police kind of going at each other or Mixed all together, here was the retreating workers, uh, many of them shot or lying on the ground, and the police walking around casually and giving no medical assistance whatsoever. No ambulances were called. You know, the, the footage itself is just absolutely horrifying. It's never been fully aired like this. So we're kind of presenting this uh, at this length and in this detail and slow motion for the first time. As much as we describe it, you really have to see it to 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 try to believe it.
4: Yeah, and I think the brutality is really about we are gonna crush the strike. You know, by whatever means, Republic still using the police as allies and as, you know, frontmen in this, we're gonna we are gonna crush it. Because we're in a period of time with great labor victories, great labor struggles and victories. And, you know, they, Republic still says, okay, we're not going to be part of this. We're going to do whatever we can by whatever means necessary to crush the strike and prevent a union. And they did for a while, but eventually, you know, the uh, Republic still was unionized.
0: So, <clears throat> looking, we study history not to live in the past, but to learn from the lessons of the past. So what are the lessons from this that we can take to what's happening today? Well, I
4: think one, you know, certainly what we're seeing with the resurgence of labor struggles and labor activity now is don't give up, you know, I mean, and see what the power of workers standing together to assert, you know, their rights, their rights to better wages, but also their rights to be treated like human beings. And that's why people were out there. And I think that that's what we're seeing. We're after a you know a period of time of uh, complacency or just repression of, you know, of activity, workers are, are out there and making gains and inspiring each other.
1: Yeah, we we hope that people who see the fed, that that workers or potential strikers who view the film would say, "Boy, we look what these people lay the groundwork for us, or look what they went through." I mean, surely we can do more today. I, I would just mention two other things quickly as as lessons for today. I think it's interesting that in the aftermath of the massacre, uh, there were calls, uh, which I wasn't really certainly aware of till recently. There were uh, uh, published calls for uh, police vans to be outfitted with cameras to tell be able to tell the truth and settle disputes of this sort. So uh, it didn't happen right away, but I I think of it as laying the groundwork for body cams and dashboard cams and so forth. And that's because of this film controversy over the film. The other thing I would just quickly mention was this was the last uh, labor, this was the last last least confrontation with labor that had such a, such a high toll of dead and wounded, um, uh, to, to put it in context here, you know, 10 dead and, uh, you know, another 80, uh, wounded, nothing like that has been approached after that. And so there was a, a certain sense, both with uh, labor and police of, well, let's try not to get to this point, you know, where we can trigger this kind of thing, you know, even though, uh, I find, and certainly workers found the police fully guilty, you know, of this, uh, these murders, nevertheless, there was a sobering uh, aspect to it of, you know, this is too horrible. We can't, you know, we, we can't really have a repeat of this. And they never really did have a repeat of this. You connect the film to the current
2: struggles and the current resurgence in the labor movement, but, the, but something that you don't address explicitly, and I, I'd like to get your thoughts on it, because obviously, what resonated certainly for me, uh were the black lives matter protests and the reaction to those protests and and the same sort of demonizing and mischaracterizing of protesters the violence the police brutality um Mm -hmm. and 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 some deaths as well um and so I guess two questions about that one is uh just does that resonate with you and and clearly you made a choice not to I mean that's almost probably a whole other film I suppose
4: I mean, first of all, in a a film, you make choices, you know, all the time about what gets in and what may be the subject of another film or whatever. But I think um, even though the kind of labor struggles may not have been as violent afterwards, certainly the kind of repression and reaction and we're going to crush you at any cost has never really waned. And so I think we faced it with labor struggles, with social movements, with the police, with armed vigilantes who have, you know, never gone away, not really. And then, you know, you have all kinds of other issues that we faced and we still contend with. You have the the McCarthy hearings, you have repression on people and what they believe in, You know, and I think as we're in the writer's strike now, we'll see kind of um, what happens. You know, it's not that same kind of physical violence, but who knows what will happen, especially, you know, with media manipulation and repression of thoughts and ideas, which we're seeing all over. I'm not saying it's going to happen in the writer's strike, but I'm saying we exist in an atmosphere now, where this kind of has become the norm again.
1: Yeah, many of the people arrested on the workers' side in the Memorial Day Massacre were then tarred as communists, and there was all sorts of red red baiting going on, and people labeled as communists and so forth. I mean, I should emphasize that our film is is only 26 minutes long, which, number one, makes it easy to watch at a sitting. And it's available for all to see for free over at pbs.org. Uh, also, it's narrated by Josh Charles, the, the well-known actor. Uh, Studs Terkel kind of does an intro and so forth. But it really is a very, very tight. So we really did have to concentrate on certain things. But certainly the police brutality of today and police getting away with it uh, and the controversies over uh, footage and what what is shown. And uh, even when footage seems to show the police are the guilty party, uh, they still get off. you know, So this is really reflected in you know in in this in this film and what happened with there, that, that, so that's another modern echo of a uh, police brutality that uh, is uh, unchecked. I, I should mention there's a companion book that's now uh, been published that i I wrote that's available on Barnes & Noble and uh, and Dreaded Amazon. It has the same title, and it uh, was published last week. It's the first uh, oral history. It's actually uh, quite different than the documentary in the sense that it's it's totally just the voices of the eyewitnesses and the activists, people who got wounded. Studs Terkel was there the next day uh, in Chicago. He went to the scene and saw the, the wounded uh, people still there. And then there's commentary from... Uh, uh, Dorothy Day, who uh, wrote about it that month, and uh, Gore Vidal, and uh, John Franklin, a bunch of other people. But it's, a, it's the first oral history of the murders. Greg Mitchell, Lynn Goldfarb,
2: thanks so much for being with us, and thanks for uh, a wonderful film. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.
3: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day that workers at the Jones and Laughlin plant in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, voted in the first ever union election in the United States steel industry under the National Labor Relations Board. The National Labor Relations Act had been passed two years earlier, guaranteeing workers the right to join and form a union. But the steel industry had long stood against union organizing. In Pennsylvania, anti-union bosses in steel and coal often had the backing of the state militia. Workers who dared to talk union were harassed and fired. George Laughlin, a steel worker at Jones and Laughlin, found out just how far the company would go to keep the union out of their plant. When George was injured on the job, he took up a part-time job organizing. The company pulled strings and had him committed to the state's lunatic asylum. He was only released after the governor intervened. Governor Griffin Pinchot was a progressive who dared to stand up to the steel companies. The passage of the National Labor Relations Act gave workers the support of the federal government to stand up for their rights as workers. After the votes were counted, it was declared that the workers had overwhelmingly chosen the Steel Workers Organizing Committee, or SWOC, as their bargaining agent. Jones and Laughlin agreed to rehire the workers that had been fired due to their union activity. They also had to pay these workers' backpacks. And the company agreed to sit down and bargain with the union. The next year, the giant of the steel industry, U.S. Steel, signed its first contract oh, with SWAP. Union Pittsburgh. recognition had finally come to the steel mills.
0: Well, what did Jones and Laughlin steal?
3: Pittsburgh. Labor History in Two brought to you by the what Illinois Labor History Jones, Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin like Jones us on Facebook, and follow us, see us, see us the on the Twitters at Labor History in Two.
0: Dark Republic's bloody ground The 30th of May All brothers.
2: That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Today's music was Memorial Day Massacre by Joe Glazer. The film Memorial Day Massacre Workers Die, Film Buried is streaming online nationally for free at pbs.org. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show based in Pennsylvania. Labor History Today is produced by the Kalmenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time
0: or girdless, bloody hands He'll be a sign of tyranny throughout the world's broad land Men and women of the working class and you little children too Remember that Memorial Day and the dead who died for you